You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. Lecture 7 of Spiritual Beings in the Heavenly Bodies and in the Kingdoms of Nature by Rudolf Steiner You will have understood from the former lectures that when we gaze at the planetary system, at the starry heavens, our physical vision only perceives Maya, the great illusion. We reach reality, actual reality, only when we gradually attain knowledge of the spiritual beings at work in the various heavenly bodies. We began these studies by making the attempt to learn about the individual spiritual beings at work in cosmic space, in the stellar system. We sought to know these spiritual beings as such. In other words, we had to become acquainted with the various beings of the three hierarchies standing above humanity. You will have noticed that we approached the beings of these hierarchies by pointing out the ways in which occult consciousness actually penetrates to a sort of perception of the beings in the supersensible world who are directly or even indirectly exalted above humanity. We tried to follow an inner, a mystic, esoteric path in order to gain some idea, a purely spiritual psychic idea, of the character of the beings of the higher hierarchies. Only in the last lecture did we try to turn a little from the inner to the outer, so to speak, and try to show how by means of a working together of a duality in the hierarchies, a duality of normal and luciferic beings, the actual external forms of the stars visible to the senses came into being. Before proceeding further with our occult, esoteric, mystical considerations, I should now like to approach from another side, namely the side that is connected with ordinary consciousness. This brings us again to the paths we followed earlier, In considering this more external path, which starts from facts known to normal consciousness, we shall in any case have to refer to much in the earlier lectures. When we look into cosmic space with our ordinary normal consciousness, we discover, first of all, heavenly bodies of various kinds. These have indeed been differentiated and described by external materialistic astronomy. Today we will devote our attention to what in a planetary system is to a certain extent visible to external consciousness. We have there the planets themselves, with the fixed star, the sun, as their ruler, and circling the planets we have their moons. Speaking of our earth, we have our own moon. But within the planetary system we also have those remarkable stars that are so difficult for external consciousness to place in the collective picture of the system, the meteoric and cometary bodies. We will, to begin with, look away from everything else in the stellar systems and fix our attention upon the following quaternary in a planetary system. The planets, the fixed stars, the moons, and the comets. Let us be quite clear concerning the obvious fact that to ordinary consciousness only the planet itself, and indeed only the particular planet on which ordinary consciousness functions, is perceptible. Thus to the earth-dweller, The earth is the planet. All the rest is at first only observable in its most external nature to normal consciousness. With the hypotheses given to us by occult 
esoteric methods, we will now pass on to the external classification normal consciousness provides. We have already classified the human being in the ranks of the beings who stand, as it were, above us, as on the lowest step of the ladder of the hierarchies. We then ascended to the three categories of the third hierarchy and described the beings known to Western esotericism as angels or angeloi, archangels or archangeloi, and spirits of the age or archai. Standing above these as the second hierarchy, we have those beings we have described as spirits of form, spirits of motion, spirits of wisdom, and above these again the spirits of will or thrones, the cherubim and the seraphim. Only when we fix our attention in this way upon the ranks of the spiritual beings, the steps, as it were, of the ladder of the different beings of the hierarchies, are earthly relationships brought into esoteric consciousness. Indeed, as we have seen, if we wish fully to consider humanity and everything that pertains to us on this planet, we must think of ourselves in relation to all these beings. We saw in the last lecture that the phenomena of humanity and our planet are not to be explained spiritually unless we fix our attention on these beings. We have seen that from human beings to the spirits of the age, we are concerned with beings who in the first instance play their part in the human historical process of civilization. Thus we must regard the beings of the third hierarchy as bringing humanity forward step by step in its earthly development, as leading the evolution of civilization. Further, we have seen that while these beings of the third hierarchy remain above, certain of their offspring, whom we have called nature spirits, descend into the world of nature and work there. We have also seen that when we turn our attention to the planets themselves, they cannot be explained unless we think of their forms as determined by the spirits of form, their inner mobility and activity by the spirits of motion, and their consciousness by the spirits of wisdom. This only refers to the inner part of the planet, the inner part of the earth, the part which belongs to humanity. We have seen, too, that the planet would be still if only beings up to the rank of the spirits of wisdom were active. We must ascribe to the spirits of will the fact that it moves and has an impulse to movement, and the regulation of movement in the whole planetary system we must ascribe to the cherubim. We have in this way put together the whole planetary system, for while the movements of the individual planets are so ordered that together they comprise the system, it must be presumed that the whole is directed from the fixed stars. And what speaks from the planetary system to cosmic space, to the neighboring planetary system, we have in the seraphim. We could compare this with the fact that people do not live only for themselves or simply in a social connection. This could be compared with the directing of the spirits of will, but rather understand one another by their speech. So there is similarly mutual understanding between one planetary system and another by means of the seraphim. The seraphim are to the whole system what corresponds to language that draws and holds people together and leads them to agreement. The seraphim carry messages from one planetary system to another and give information of what takes place in one planetary system to the other system. By this means the world of planetary systems is integrated and forms a whole. We were obliged 
to instance these successive grades of the beings of the hierarchies, for all the forces and activities proceeding from these hierarchies are perceptible in the collective phenomena of humanity on its planet. Occult vision teaches us that just as this whole system of beings has to do with the planet Earth, so a similar system likewise belongs to other planets. When, with all the means at our disposal, we direct our occult vision to the other planets of our own planetary system, we find that we have the same experiences approaching the planets as we do when we approach the cherubim, seraphim, or thrones. In other words, everything I have described as necessary in order to raise ourselves to a being of the rank of the cherubim, seraphim, or thrones, insofar as they cooperate in events on earth, all this we find when we direct our spiritual vision to Saturn or to other planets of our system. We must proceed exactly in the same way, as far down as the spirits of motion. Seraphim, cherubim, thrones, spirits of wisdom, the results for occult vision are the same as for all the individual planets of our planetary system. Whether we direct our observation to Mars, Jupiter, Mercury or Venus, we find the same results as when we fix our attention on the activities of these particular beings. On the other hand, we no longer find the same results for the other planets of our system as regards the activity of the spirits of motion and the spirits of form. In other words, if we try to direct our occult vision to another planet, to Mars, for instance, and ask, how do the seraphim, cherubim, thrones, and spirits of wisdom work upon Mars? The answer is, they work on Mars just as they do on Earth. But if we ask the same question with regard to the spirits of motion and form, this is no longer the case. The activities of these two categories of higher hierarchies differ from one another as regards the individual planets. We must make this distinction. Every planet of our planetary system has its own spirit of form, its own spirit of motion. Now we can also direct our occultly developed vision to the sun itself, the fixed star. If we wish to know the fixed star in its own being, we must take care that in our observation of it we do not confuse it with what chiefly has significance not for the fixed star but for its surrounding planets. Let us understand correctly. In a previous lecture I stated that all these beings of the higher hierarchies down to the spirits of form actually work together in the cosmic system as a sort of council having its residence in the sun. I said that the sun is actually the center of activity of all these spirits. Now when we state that Mars, for instance, has its own spirit of form as has Jupiter and also the Earth, we must imagine if we wish to speak in pictures and in relation to these exalted conditions, everything is more or less a picture, that although the sun is always actually the seat, the center of the activities of the spirits of form of Mars and Jupiter and so on, and although they work from there, from the fixed star, their sphere of action on Mars is, so to speak, allotted to the spirits of form from the sun. They work upon Mars from the sun. Other spirits of form work upon the earth, others upon Jupiter. What they perform is an activity for the benefit of the whole system. We will not ask what is accomplished from the sun, from the fixed star, for the benefit of the planets, but rather what takes place in the realm of the fixed star itself for its own beings, for the actual evolution of the beings belonging to the fixed star. We can best understand this matter if we compare it with what one does as one human being for another. We cannot 
regard this activity as directly meaning something for one's own development, it is done for the benefit of others. This particular activity of the spirits of form and the spirits of motion benefits the planetary system. But if we ask, apart from the fact that the fixed star is surrounded by planets, how does evolution take place upon the fixed star itself as a separate entity? What contributes to the evolution of the beings of the fixed star itself? Then we actually come to the same boundary. If we direct our occult vision to the fixed star in our system to the sun, we have to say that only those spiritual beings of the higher hierarchies from the seraphim down to the spirits of wisdom have a certain power over the nature of the sun. Only they work for the development of the fixed star itself and its beings, whereas the spirits of motion and form can, so to speak, do nothing for the evolution of the beings of the fixed star itself. To them is apportioned the planets that surround the fixed star in the planetary system. Thus, if we direct our gaze to the fixed star, we must conclude life upon the fixed star is so exalted, so grand and mighty, that the beings developing there can associate only with beings of the sublimity of the seraphim, cherubim, thrones, and spirits of wisdom. Those spirits, the spirits of motion and the spirits of form, who are going through their evolution upon the fixed star itself, are powerless to do anything for its evolution. They are not of sufficiently exalted rank. They, who are of such immense importance for planetary humanity, are of no importance to the fixed star. They are powerless to work upon its development. Hence, if we fix our attention on the being of the planet and look away from the humanity dwelling upon it, on our earth, we can say, insofar as the planet has its place in the solar system, all ranks of beings down to the spirits of form have an influence on its development. We must reckon the sphere of influence that works upon the fixed stars as extending down to the spirits of wisdom. The sphere of influence upon the planets we have to reckon down to the spirits of form. Now, within the planetary system there still remain two cosmic bodies, the moon and the comets. And the question now is, how do these cosmic bodies present themselves to occult vision? If directed to the moon, revolving around our earth, what forms of activity does occult vision find there? Occult vision finds nothing about them upon the moon similar to what is developed as human life upon the earth. An evolution resembling the human is not to be found upon the moon, nor is there any evolution to be found there that can be compared to our animal kingdom. Neither of these is to be found by occult vision upon our moon. It would, of course, be trivial and superfluous to say that no human beings incorporated in flesh walk upon the moon, nor such animals as are to be met with upon the earth. When an occultist uses such expressions, he or she means something essentially different. It certainly might be possible for something resembling the higher principles of human nature, the human eye or astral body, to exist under other conditions on a cosmic body and pass through a development there without being incarnated in a human fleshly or etheric body. That is conceivable. Such conditions really do exist. It is conceivable that an evolution in a spiritual sense might take place upon the moon without the external embodiment, the external stamp of the beings resembling those of human beings. But that does not happen to be the case. Nothing like human history, like a development of beings who might even psychically resemble human beings or earthly animals, exists upon the moon. 
Even if we ascend from humanity to the beings we have called the first spiritual leaders of humanity, whom we have described as angels in the ranks of the hierarchies, we do not find their evolutions upon the moon. We find there no form of activity, no forces such as those that proceed from the intervention upon earth of the angels or angeloi. We have described with some precision what these beings have to do for humanity upon the earth. No such intervention takes place on the moon. Nowhere do we find traces of any human or animal activity, or any activity such as we could attribute to the angels. But if we go further and fix our attention on the forces by means of which the archangels forward human evolution, and if we then turn our occult sight to the moon, strange to say, we find the following forces existing there. Occult vision finds as active, existing forces on the moon the same forces that it encounters when contemplating earthly evolution, it contemplates the development of a people through its folk soul or archangel. The archangel who guides the lives of nations spiritually is present in its special characteristic as forces and speaks to us when we focus our spiritual sight upon the moon, when we fix our attention upon the nature of those spiritual beings whom we designate as the archai or spirits of the age, those beings who take charge of and lead earthly evolution from one epoch to another, for instance from the Egyptian civilization to the Greek or from the Greek to our own, if we acquire an occult vision of the forces ruling in the guidance of evolution by the spirit of the age, we find these same distinctive forces again when we look upon what meets our gaze from the moon. So, just as we could in the case of the planet designate for its sphere the beings of the higher hierarchies as far as the spirits of form, so can we also set limits to the sphere of the moon and say the sphere of the moon extends as far as the archangels. Now before we continue to study the results of occult investigation as we have done before, it will be useful for our further consideration if from the point of view of occultism we further compare the moon, the planets, and the fixed star. In undertaking such a comparison it is necessary in the first place to acquire a true idea of what exists in us as human beings, especially in our physical bodies in a way not taken into account by the ordinary materialistic anatomy and physiology. What does the ordinary anatomist of today do when investigating a physical body? Well, the anatomist takes a piece of the liver, let us say, then a piece of nerve or brain substance as contiguous substances, and investigates them side by side, comparing the one with the other in a purely external way. The ordinary materialistic anatomist or physiologist does not take into consideration the fact that when we have before us a piece of brain substance and a piece of liver substance, we have absolutely different things. We have in one part of the human body something upon which the higher bodies, the supersensible principles, work quite differently from the way they do on another part. Thus, for instance, a portion of brain substance is so constituted that the whole structure, the whole formation could not arise if this substance had not been worked upon not only by an etheric body, but also by an astral body. The astral body permeates and works upon the brain substance, and there is nothing in the brain substance or the nerve substance upon which the astral body, in cooperation with the etheric body, does not work. Take, on the other hand, a portion of the liver. You must imagine that the liver is also permeated by the astral body, 
But that, this permeation, does nothing for the liver, takes no part in the inner organization of the liver. On the other hand, the etheric body takes a very essential part in the organization and structure of the liver. The different human organs are in reality very different from each other. We can only study the liver when we know that in it the etheric body with its forces plays the chief part, and that the astral body, though it certainly permeates the liver as water does a sponge, has no special share in its formation or inner configuration. We can only picture the brain substance as something in which the astral body has essentially the largest share, and the etheric body only a lesser one. Again, in the whole structure of the blood system, even to the framework of the heart, the eye has its essential part. While in the organization of nerve substance as such, for instance, not to mention the other organs, the eye takes no part at all. Thus, when we consider the human physical body in the occult sense, not in the sense of mere formula, we have in its various organs things, beings of quite different value, of quite different essence, altogether of quite different natures. We may say that what in human beings is the liver or the spleen depends upon higher principles at work within it. Liver and spleen are very different organs. The astral body has, in a very special manner, a strong share in the spleen, while it has hardly any share in the liver. All these things will at some time have to be studied, and indeed at no very distant date, by the physiologists and anatomists. Gradually, facts will come to light in materialistic descriptions of human, animal, and plant organs, which will make no sense at all if only compared as though they were peas and beans, as external anatomy and physiology, excuse me, as external anatomy and physical science do today. How something in the world and in the human being stands in relation to the spirit represents its true nature. And as it is in the human being, so it is in the heavenly system. A moon is quite different from a planet or fixed star. We have already seen that the relation of the beings of the higher hierarchies to the sun is different than it is to the moon or the planets. Consequently, in order to describe these differences, we must fix our attention on the following. Suppose we could take out of a planetary system, as it were, peel off, all the moons of the individual planets. Think away for a moment the fixed star itself and the planets till we have only the moons remaining in the planetary system. If occult vision were so directed that it observed only what it now had before it, the moons, everything that is moon within the planetary system, everything in which the forces, as far down as the archangels, are the same as upon our earth in the successive evolution of humanity. If we were to do this, we should then gain a very definite impression. We should have a very definite occult experience. We can then repeat this occult experience a second time. I'm going to read that sentence again. If occult vision were so directed that it observed only what it now had before it, the moons, everything that is moon within the planetary system, everything in which the forces as far down as the archangels are the same as upon our earth in the successive evolution of humanity, if we were to do this, we should then gain a very definite impression. We should have a very definite occult experience. We can then repeat this occult experience a second time. Now, anyone with trained occult vision can with sufficient willpower, that is to say having prepared oneself, think away the fixed star and the planets from the planetary system so that only the moons remain. Having done so, one must then seek for something else 
that gives the same impression as that connected with all the moons of a planetary system. Now, precisely the same impression is made on a person who visualizes all the moons as is made on one who looks at a human corpse, a physical body, the bearer of which has recently passed through the gate of death. Although these things appear externally as absolutely different, what appears to natural science as an external difference is maya. The impression made upon our occult vision when we as human beings stand thus with regard to all the moons of a planetary system on the one hand and on the other stand before a physical body left behind, deserted by the astral and etheric bodies, is one and the same. From this arises the occult knowledge that the planetary system in the moons that are continually coming into existence is gradually forming its own corpse within itself. All the moons of a system which are continually being formed will constitute the corpse of a planetary system. The difference with regard to humans is that at the moment when we with our being pass into the condition in which the planetary system is when it forms its moons, we reject our corpse while the planetary system keeps the corpse within itself, binds it together, and condenses the dying matter into moons. Thus it is as though we humans, when we go through the gates of death, were not to lay aside our physical body, but were to form it into some sort of organ and, by a certain power within ourselves, drag it about with us. A planetary system actually drags about its own corpse, a continually changing corpse, a corpse in the process of becoming, an evolving corpse in its moons. Let us now go further and try to describe the impression a cult sight has when it thinks away all the moons of the planetary system as well as the fixed star and the possibly existing comets. If we fix our attention in this way upon the whole system of the planets themselves, completely concentrate ourselves upon the system of planets, make the impression clear to ourselves and imprint it upon our memory in order to describe it, we must once more at a later moment compare this impression with something that differs from the impression we received from the individual planets. If we search for something in our immediate earthly environment that gives us the same impression as all the planets of a system, we find none other than that made on us if we allow the various animal forms to work on us. This impression is extremely difficult to gain completely, but it can be partially gained by allowing various animal forms to work upon us. One cannot in a single moment have an occult impression of all the animals on the earth. That would be too complicated. But a compromise can be made by letting a number of characteristic animal forms so work upon us that we take into consideration only the occult forces at work in those forms. Then, comparing them by means of occult vision, we can gain from the form something that produces a similar impression upon us to that produced by the totality of the planets of a system. Let us now direct our occult vision to the fixed star, in our case the sun, and try to gain an impression of the fixed star in the way described for the totality of the moons and planets. Once we notice the impression made by the forces active in the fixed star, we can again find something in earthly conditions that can evoke a similar impression. This again is somewhat difficult, because this time we have to consider the plants, and we cannot reach the whole plant world of our earth. 
but it will suffice, comparatively speaking, if we fix our occult gaze upon a certain number of forms, plant forms, and gain the occult impression of what works and lives in plants. If we allow that to work upon our vision, it recalls the impression we received from the inner development of the fixed star. The differences certainly become greater and greater. The resemblance of a human corpse after death to the totality of the moons is really very striking as regards the occult impression. This resemblance is also pronounced in the impressions made by the planetary world and the fixed star upon the human being. The resemblance is clearly present, but it is no longer so great as that between the discarded physical human body and the totality of the moons. However, the resemblance becomes infinitely greater if we now demand from occult vision something special. Namely, when we have gained an impression of a number of plant forms, we must look away from these plants we have observed with occult vision, look away from the physical plant bodies, and make use of those means the practical occultist uses when observing the etheric bodies of the plants. Thereby we make an additional observation. We noted the impression we gained from the fixed star. We then sought the similar, though not yet satisfactory, impression we gain from a number of plants. Now we go further. We abstract the external form of the plant and allow the etheric body within the plant to work upon us. The resemblance then increases and becomes almost as complete as that between the physical human corpse and the totality of the moons. Occult perception realizes then that when we look up to the fixed star, what we perceive as working in the fixed star is the etheric body of the planetary system, for we actually gain the impression of an etheric body. We understand the impression the fixed star makes upon us when we observe the etheric body of the plants, where it works as yet unmixed with an astral body, where only the etheric body works in cooperation with the physical body. We then gain the knowledge that when we look at the fixed star, we actually see the etheric body of the planetary system raying down from it. Now we can say, in the moons we have the corpse of the planetary system, in the totality of the planets we have its body, its physical body. And in the fixed star itself, raying out from it, we have the etheric body of the planetary system. In fact, the possibility that occult vision will cling to the dead papier-mâché ideas upon which all physical astronomy is based soon ceases. For this vision everywhere recognizes that the whole planetary system is permeated by life and is a living organism. Indeed, a continual stream of etheric life flows from the fixed star to the outermost boundary of the system and back again. We have continually to consider life forces as in living animal and plant bodies, which appear centered, I say this now by way of comparison, centered in the fixed star, as the life of the animal is centered, let us say, in the heart, or as plant life is centered in the various organs that regulate the rising and falling of the sap. In short, we have to do with a center of the planetary system, which we must seek in the fixed star. After this, we can also direct our attention to the comets, to cometary life. Now, I do not doubt that if the characteristics of the planetary system just discussed were heard in external science, this would be regarded as a very special folly, but that does not matter at all. Nevertheless, with regard to cometary life, things become particularly difficult because the opportunity to observe cometary life is such that a certain impartiality of occult vision is necessary in order to observe this peculiar life in the planetary system.
It must not for a moment be supposed that in the whole planetary system there is nothing except what we have now called corpse, the physical body, and etheric body. For, of course, every part is permeated by the beings of the various hierarchies. Naturally, there are spiritual psychic forces everywhere, and we need only grasp the fact that within the system are the spirits of the age, the archangels, and the luciferic beings. They all belong to it. We have now discovered in the planetary system the corpse, the physical body, and the etheric body. From what we have now heard, we can, of course, say that everywhere within the system there is also astral substance that is organized into beings, for there is astral substance even in the beings of the higher hierarchies. If we describe humanity, the microcosm, as it passes before us, we say human beings consist of physical body, etheric body, astral body, and so on. If we describe a planetary system, we must only add something else to its lowest principle, and we must say a planetary system consists of its moons, which are its corpse, its planets, which are its physical body, and of everything the fixed star directs, which is its etheric body. The astral body we can find there of itself. We learn to know of it by the fact that the beings dwell in it. As we humans dwell in our sheaths, so do the beings of the higher hierarchies dwell in the sheath of the corpse, in the physical sheath, and in the etheric sheath of the planetary system. We need not at first trouble about the astral body, for we already have that by means of esoteric occult vision, which is directed inward. Now, even if you consider human life upon the earth, you will admit that by the agency of this human life, we know this from elementary spiritual science, there arise a number of astral beings, astral forms, that are actually harmful, hindering to life. From human beings themselves stream forth continually erroneous, base, evil thoughts. These are, as we know, realities, which pass out into the astral world and continue to exist there, so that the astral sphere of a planet is filled not only with the normal substances of its psychic being, but also with this poured-out astral substance. If we investigated all the harmful forces brought forth by the various luciferic spirits alone, we would find an enormous mass of harmful astral substances in a planetary system. In a curious way, occult vision, which has observed cometary life for a time, shows us that everything of a cometary or meteoric nature is forever striving to collect round itself all the harmful astral products and to remove them out of the planetary system. We shall see furthermore in the course of these lectures how this particularly affects the harmful astral products of humanity. For example, we see that the comets carry away the noxious, luciferic evils out of the planetary system. Before concluding this lecture, I should like to give you an idea of how this is done. If I draw a planetary system with its sun, we can indicate a comet passing through it in such a way that its track comes across the system, that its track crosses the system. Physical astronomy says that the comet comes from very far away, very, very far away. When the beginning of a thing cannot be traced, it is easy to say that it comes from very, very far away. So physical astronomy also says the comet comes from very far away and also returns to a very great distance. Now because certain comets return periodically, physical astronomy cannot think otherwise than that these comets come from far away, pass through our system, and again disappear. They are said to follow a very long path in cosmic space and then come back again. 
materialistic astronomy cannot imagine anything else. Occult vision, however, shows us as a matter of fact that just about when the comet disappears from physical sight, it dissolves and continues its way through a world not limited limited to the ordinary three dimensions of space. It no longer exists in the ordinary world. It actually disappears on the one side and appears again on the other. This is a conception of which naturally materialistic astronomy can make no use. It cannot conceive that a comet, when it again reappears, has not been in existence in the meantime. The anthroposophist should be able to understand something of such things. We know, for example, that the succession of physical bodies constituting human incarnations in certain respects form a complete whole from the force aspect, and yet they are not connected physically. Thus, in short, with the exception of a few comets that really have long-drawn elliptical orbits, the comets for the most part are so formed that they come in at the one side and disappear at the other, and when they reappear they have formed themselves anew. Why? Because as a comet approaches, it exercises a power of attraction. It is at first merely a sort of spiritual force center. This center attracts all the harmful astral streams, develops them around itself, and thus takes on form. We shall hear in the next lecture why it has a tail and a nucleus under the influence of this drawing up of harmful astral matter. It attracts more and more of this around itself as it passes through the planetary system. In its journey toward the other side, It draws this along with it until it arrives beyond the region of the planetary system. Then it casts it out into cosmic space. Thereafter, the center of force builds itself again at the other pole without needing three-dimensional space, takes up once more the harmful matter and throws it out on the other side. Thus we must regard cometary life as something that continually works as a thunderstorm in the planetary system, cleansing it. By the passage of a comet through the planetary system, an effort is made to discharge from the system the injurious matters that have been called forth by the harmful astral radiations of beings. This is to say that we have something in cometary life of which we cannot, as in the physical and etheric bodies, find an analogy in the human being. The physical body of the planetary system is the totality of the planets. The etheric body is that which, raying out from the fixed star, streams through the system. But in the physical human being, it is not the case that we carry our corpse about with us, as the planetary system does. On the other hand, the planetary has an arrangement for getting rid of the evil astral matter by means of its comets. Now, if we study what exists in the comet only as maya, yet which is active within it as force, it is extremely difficult to connect with it what we have learned in the course of these lectures. I have described to you, for example, how one may ascend to the thrones and how this can only be done by studying the human will. If this study is undertaken with occult means, one can raise oneself up to the thrones. But in the comets there is nothing at all to be found, either of the spirits of wisdom or of the thrones, We find nothing in the comets that would be attainable by any other than those occult methods I mentioned in former lectures. These are methods that proceed from the fact that we study an individual who is not merely a thinking, feeling, and willing human being, but one who can give us a special impression. We described how this impression can be obtained by allowing ourselves to be influenced by someone who has behind them decades of rich experience of life, someone whose wisdom as an extract of all this experience 
makes an impression upon us and does more than can be done by arguments of a logical or more rational sort. The actual power of conviction of the wisdom derived from human experience is so impressive that developed by occult vision one can actually see the spiritual through it, giving our occult vision a first idea of the cherubim. If we further school this occult vision on the direct convincing effect of the unspoken wisdom and strength of such an individual, whereby what he or she has gained through life experience is displayed in his or her eyes, we then gain an understanding of the impression we need for the sphere of the seraphim. But the impression we can thus obtain does not yet lead us to the observation of the spiritual behind the comets. All this is of no avail for an occult study of the comets. Only the two methods, leading to the cherubim and seraphim themselves, can give us an elucidation of the comets. The sphere of the comets extends to the sphere of the cherubim. In order to understand the substance and movement of the comets, we must first know what is the nature of the cherubim and seraphim. The evolution of the comets is dependent upon the beings of the higher hierarchies down to the cherubim. The evolution of the fixed star is dependent on the beings of the higher hierarchies down to the spirits of wisdom. The evolution of the planet itself, apart from the human beings who dwell upon it, is dependent upon the forces proceeding from the higher hierarchies down to the spirits of form. And what works on the moon is dependent on the forces that proceed from the higher hierarchies down to the archangels. Thus we have described the life of the planetary system from various sides and can build further upon this foundation in subsequent lectures. To be sure, we must note particularly that we can never grasp these matters by means of merely mechanical definitions. How often has it been said that every microcosm corresponds to a macrocosm? We may call the human being a microcosm, a solar system in miniature, but if we wish to point out the correspondence, we must not stop at these abstract assertions, but must proceed so far with the concrete connection that one realizes such mechanical descriptions have but an approximate value in the world. If we begin by describing the microcosmic human being from the physical body upward as the being standing immediately before us, we must in the planetary system begin by describing the corpse and must also find in the planetary system the substances of the cometary bodies, which are the external expression for the purifying astral thunderstorms in the planetary system. The end of Lecture 7